Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Rick Mixter with us. Author, former television news reporter, historian. Rick specializes in maritime and aviation history. He's been awarded by the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History, featured on PBS and the History Channel, served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, and is one of the most requested speakers on the Great Lakes. He's versed in everything from shipwrecks to lighthouses and even aviation out there. His book is called Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters, also the Wheelsmen. Rick, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to this. George, as well, this is a real highlight of my career to talk to you, sir. I appreciate it. I'm going to tell you an interesting story. Back on November 10th, 1975, I'm a producer at WJBK in Detroit, and it's about 6.30, 7 o'clock, something like that, there's a little clip on the Associated Press Newswire that said there's a ship missing at Lake Superior. And I said, my gosh. So we had a night crew working for us, two guys, Les Walden and Ken Schneer, the sound man. Les was the cameraman. And the reporter was a fellow by the name of Ron Sanders. And I said, what the heck? You know, we're not doing anything tonight. Go. <laughs> and, and, and I sent him out there. And my news director called me up, Rick, and he went nuts. He said, what are you spending all that money for on, on a missing ship? And I said, Dick, his name was Dick Graff at the time. He's dead now. And I said, Dick. I have a hunch that this is a huge story. And look what happened. CBS News used our video footage the next day. What we had, Rick, are things from the ship that floated to shore. It was absolutely chilling. But what a story. And uh, then after Gordon Lightfoot did his thing, I mean, it lives in memory forever, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And I'm surprised even, you know, 46 years later, we're still chatting about it in lectures and uh, in so many stories that come out. So, yeah, what an amazing story you have, though, of a personal tie to it. What television market were you in? Out of the Bay City, Saginaw, but I was born and raised up in the UP, so I worked at Channel 6 as one of my first uh, stations, in addition to a bunch of radio stations. So a great career in Michigan and uh, and just incredible stories that included a lot of shipwrecks. Absolutely. What a, what a monumental story that was. How many ships and people have been lost in the Great Lakes? We've been arguing that as historians forever because, you know, it's tough to get an exact number, but it's over 15,000 shipwrecks that have been lost. Um, We still believe that there's at least 5,000 that we haven't found, that that the lakes are just so vast and so deep. You know, Lake Superior is up to 1,300 feet deep that there's some that we may never find. But with our new technology, we're finding a lot of them, and we did this past summer. And so many men and women have been lost as well. That's tragic. Oh, 250,000 sailors, they've or 25,000 sailors, forgive me, um, lost men and women, yeah, that uh, and passengers that were on these ships. I had heard that the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, was, was top-heavy with iron ore and that it uh, got hit by either three massive waves, the winds were like 50 miles an hour. What has what been the official version of what happened to that ship? That's why I think we continue to argue, because there's no real official. I've I've done interviews with former sailors, with the men who have built the Edmund Fitzgerald, um, with uh, the investigators from uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau all the way to uh, 
um, the Coast Guard, and everybody disagrees. <laughs> so I, I believe that there was a massive wave. I, when I dove it in 1994 in a tiny submarine, I saw hatch number one was folded in by what apparently was a massive wave, and, and the account of uh, the captain that was behind them, the, uh, Captain Cooper on the Anderson, he said that wave hit them and damaged their lifeboat, and that was 30 feet above the water. So I believe that massive wave is what hit the Fitzgerald at 710. It drove its nose under, and because she had been weighed down by a lot of excess water, and we know the captain said he had a couple of vents missing, which were eight-inch holes in the deck, and then the hatches also a good possibility those hatches were not all dogged down, um, as borne out by what I saw underwater of, of some of the hatch clamps that were damaged and some weren't. So all of this water coming in is what made her very susceptible to that killer wave that brought her under before they could even call for help. Did they ever go down and get the 29 bodies, or were they ever discovered? Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, they didn't go down to get them, but uh, the Coast Guard went down for three days and looked and found nothing. Uh, Whitefish Point sent a diver, you know, or a, a robot down in 89. Jacques Cousteau was down there for a half hour. None of them reported a body. But during our dive in 94, in fact, the exact dive right after my submersible visit, we came up. Um, the owner of the tugboat that we were operating from took his son down to see the wreck, and they were the first ones to find a missing crewman. So it was a very sobering time for us to, to really unlock that, that mystery in the song that Lake Superior never gives up its dead, and that certainly happened on our dive. Rick, paint a picture for us. Put us on the ship that very, very fateful night and explain what's going on weather-wise, what's happening to the ship, and what happens when it goes down and why the 29 could not get away? Absolutely. The two ships were following each other through the storm. They had taken a very northern route to try to avoid the building waves. As the low front pushes up into Canada, it actually changed the direction of the wind. And now the wind's coming out of the northwest, and it's screaming at 70 miles an hour. That's building 150 miles of fetch, or the distance that the waves can be pushed. So these killer waves are now starting to pound into the Whitefish Point area. The captains made a, a choice to continue on. They threaded their way between Mishapakotten Island and Caribou Island. Uh, north of Caribou is some dangerous shoals that uh, many people believe that it might have run aground there. I don't personally believe that. The Coast Guard didn't believe that. But as they came through, they reported some damage. They said that they had um, a fence rail down. They said they had some vents missing and that water was coming in, and they were pumping it out with every pump that they had. So here comes this big wave that hit the Anderson and sped past the Anderson about uh, nine miles ahead until it hit the Fitzgerald in a blinding snowstorm. The people on board the Anderson were watching the Fitzgerald at that time. They were trying to keep the distance between some saltwater vessels that were coming out of Whitefish Bay, and their job was to warn the Fitz if they got close. Well, they look at the radar, they can't see anything. All they can see is a blob on the radar, and through their binoculars at night, they're looking for the lights of the Fitzgerald. They can't see them, and when it all clears up, the Fitzgerald's gone. And then wow. becomes the quest of them trying to contact the Coast Guard to convince them that a 700-foot-long freighter, one of the larger ones on the Great Lakes, uh, was missing with 29 lives, and nobody believed it. How quickly do you think it got swallowed up by the sea? 
Many people believe it was in seconds. I mean, that's borne out by the fact that the, there's three radios on the Fitzgerald. One was battery-powered, and nobody got a call out for help. So they're talking back and forth to the Anderson. They're talking to the first mate, Morgan Clark. And uh, Morgan Clark is talking about the, the saltwater vessels ahead of them. And he said, hey, by the way, how are you holding out with those problems you reported? And the Fitzgerald's captain, McSorley, said, we're holding our own. And within moments after that, that wave must have just pushed in, collapsed that uh, that uh, first hatch, and just they couldn't recover. They couldn't come back from the big wave that pushed their nose under, and she ripped into two major pieces and went down in seconds. And there's no way they could have even ditched, because even if they were in little lifeboats, those would have been capsized too. Yeah, the lifeboats have never been effective. This is also the anniversary today of the 1913 storm where 250 sailors were lost in one weekend. Oh, my 12 God. ships vanished with all of their crew. Lifeboats have always come ashore with either frozen people inside or empty. And in the Fitzgerald's case, one was cut in half, allegedly by the propeller. Another one was just split by its uh, rapid uh, ascension from the, the wreck. It tore away from the davits as the, sh- the fits went down and rolled over on the stern section. And then two inflatables came ashore with no one in them, and there was no evidence that anybody ever got into them. So it was so fast they didn't have a chance to even get out on deck to try to get to the lifeboats, which was quite different from many of the other gales of, uh, that we've seen even in 1958, the Bradley that went down, uh, the Morrell went down in 66. There were survivors from there, and that's what added to that mystery of, uh, I think, 29 people vanishing in 19. 19- 1975, when we thought we had technology that, you know, we could find them or at least track them. Was there any negligence involved in your opinion? Absolutely. I, I, you know, and I hate to, to, you know, speak ill of the dead, but there's no question that it was the captain's fault. I mean, uh. this is a, when you look at, you know, the journey you're making, and that, that captain, they had the, the Coast Guard looked into his record. He was the one captain that continued to push through most of the storms over the last decade coming into the Sioux. So he pushed a ship that was in, in ripe shape. I mean, it was, it was um, by many accounts from the cook and other people who wintered on the ship, it, it had some structural issues. And the many people who sailed on it said it, it just really bent a lot. I mean, ships normally flex in storms, but the Edmund Fitzgerald seemed to really flex in even just 10-foot waves. So the negligence was a captain who thought he could make it through. And, and quite frankly, Cooper, uh, who's behind him, believed that his ship was infallible. He said that in an interview. I share that with a lot of people. Um, they believe those ships were indestructible. They believe they'll get them through. And unfortunately for the, the 29 men on board, they didn't make it. It was a bad call. Yeah, why didn't anything happen to the other ship? That Mostly because it, it wasn't leaking the way the Fitzgerald was. It didn't have the topside damage. Anderson was a little bit bigger than the Fitzgerald. It was slower, but, it, you know, 80 feet bigger. And uh, basically, they, he cut the corner and, and had the uh, storm on his stern. The Fitzgerald was taking in water. I'm, I'm convinced it was coming in through any one of those 21 uh, hatches that are on there. And also the, the vent pipe, it was pouring into their um, ballast, and they could not pump it out fast enough. So here she is lower in the water with very little freeboard, the distance between the waves and the deck. And when that big wave came up, 
it pushed her under, and there was no way to recover. By the time it went under, the last uh, second and third hatch blew off in an explosion of, of air pressure, and it just catastrophically you know, flooded. And we can still see, I mean, my submarine actually went right over hatch number one that's dented in from what that wave did. So there's no question in my mind it was definitely that wave. Who was Edmund Fitzgerald, Rick? He was the president of Northwest Mutual Life Insurance, which it sounds odd, but uh, Northwest Mutual, as of 1957, had three different freighters they were using to help um, raise their, their stock portfolio. You know, you've got to raise money when you're a life insurance company to pay out to the policies. And uh, the investment into railroad and real estate was a big deal for them. But the going into shipping was something brand new. And they decided they would build the largest object ever dropped into fresh water. In 1957, 700 feet long was the maximum you could get through the Sioux Locks. It was, in fact, uh, they decided after that one to build two more ships in Detroit or in River Rouge area right by Detroit um, that would be a foot bigger. And the Army Corps of Engineers finally told them, you can't go bigger than that. So oh, here's a 700-foot freighter that came out, um, launched in 1958. It was the biggest that had ever gone in to the Detroit River and certainly on the Great Lakes. And uh, it broke cargo hauling records with 30,000 tons on board, which was unheard of. When Gordon Lightfoot did the song, did it really increase the notoriety of the wreck? It really did. I mean, I, I've got to say he's the patron saint of maritime history and railroad, for that matter. I mean, he wrote a lot of songs about the railroad, too. But the, his song about the Fitzgerald launched uh, essentially my career and so many people who tell stories on the Great Lakes. Uh, every museum seems to have a piece of the wreck. Um, there's a, the life raft, uh, the inflatables in Toledo at the National Mar uh, Marine Museum. Uh, Whitefish Point has many pieces, including the bell, and the lifeboats are at Valley Camp museum so everybody seems to have a piece of it but it, it edmund fitzgerald's song was the one that really pushed it it went to number two on the charts and uh, it was so long six minutes and it was that haunting guitar uh by terry clement a detroit native that mm -hmm. just really made you know that song stick out it, it wasn't his biggest hit but it certainly i think is the is the legacy that he'll always live behind was it haunting for you in the sub being down there it really was. I mean, as we went down 500 feet, as you go below 200 feet, you, you lose all sunlight. So it gets very dark by 300, 400, and now you're at 550 feet. And it's so cold, it's 35 degrees down there, that the submarine sweats. So here I am in this two-person submarine with oh. water in the bottom. And I'm very oh. nervous that, you know, we're not going to make it. And I'm trying to tell the pilot, hey, there's water in the submarine. But he, he convinced me it was just from the condensation of our breathing. And um, it was no big deal. He said a leak at that depth would have cut me in half. So <laughs> I totally understood. But to see the wreck, it, it's totally sobering. I mean, it you're seeing the letters that are, you know, huge through a porthole, and oh. it seems surreal when you look at it. And so you're, you're excited about seeing the wreck that you've heard on the radio forever, the largest shipwreck on the Great Lakes, the most famous shipwreck on the Great Lakes. But then you realize it's a gravesite, and you just get this emotional roller coaster of just being devastated to know that there's 29 men that are down there. So for us, it was it was that emotions that went up and down, and it was exciting, it was sad, and it, it was very difficult and trying. It's got to be eerie. I think it was very eerie when they discovered the Titanic, much the same kind of way in terms of looking at it from uh, from a ship 
And it's just, it's weird, isn't it? It is, and when you spend, you know, well over an hour and a half down there, I mean, we were lost for much of that. Unfortunately, the iron ore and the metal throws off your compass, and we're trying to find our way around. But the truth is, we saw so much devastation it had never been reported that you're, that you're just awestruck by it, and you're trying to take mental notes. And luckily, you know, we had cameras on board. Um, I'm a videographer. We sent down another videographer as well that, you know, we could capture these things to review later on because it's too much to take in when you're down there. Um, I'm just really lucky that we have hours and hours of videotape that we can go through that's much more uh, clear than the stuff that the Coast Guard had to really try to paint the picture of what happened. Every time you hear the song, the song I just played by Lightfoot, how do you feel? Is it, is it chilling for you? Yeah, it's chilling, but I'll be honest, there's there's some inaccuracies in there, and a lot of people get down on me for making fun of, of, of Lightfoot, and I'm not making fun of him. I just know that he just recently changed the lyric about the hatchway giving him because he felt it was inaccurate, but I know it's it's actually accurate. I wish he would have changed, you know, fully loaded for Cleveland. It, it wasn't going to Cleveland, it was going to Detroit. Or I wish he would have changed, you know, coming back from some mill in Wisconsin. There was no mill. The mill was in Minnesota. They loaded in Wisconsin. So, and the old cook coming on deck, I know through my interviews that I met the old cook who actually lived, Red Bergner. So there's a lot of inaccuracies, but as many people tell me, that song is not a documentary, Rick. <laughs> that song, is, you know, it, it's it's just a um, it, it's just a song. But because he changed it, he changed the lyric on the musty old church in Detroit. As you know, Mariner's Church is is a beautiful oh, little yeah. church. It's hardly musty. But um, I I wish he would have changed those other inaccuracies. The old cook did not come on deck and say, "Fellas, it's been good to know you," because the old cook or Rafferty didn't know everybody on board. So there's enough things that I wish that would have been changed. But still, every time you hear it, the guitar is just what takes me away. Um, and, and the lyrics that 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 he wrote, um, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? I want to cry. It, it, it devastates uh, you. To, that's how he's putting what it's like when time stands still, when these waves are tearing your ship apart. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.